Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 124 of Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. I'm Lex Starwalker, and on this show, we discuss the craft and art of game mastering. Not only do I pass along any wisdom I've gained over my 25 plus years of running RPGs, I also share wisdom from guest GMs and listener GMs like you. Today, I'm going to discuss using theater of the mind as a GM. I'll give some benefits and challenges as compared to using miniatures and a grid, and I'll pull in some opinions from listener GMs like you. Finally, I'll share some strategies to help you make theater of the mind work for you and your group. So this is a huge topic, and I've been asking on previous episodes for feedback from listeners on this topic, because this is definitely not something that I want to tackle all by myself, and uh, as exhaustive as I'm going to try to be today when it comes to discussing theater of the mind, I'm sure that we will not be able to cover everything So this is a topic we may revisit in the future, especially if I get some really good feedback from you with maybe some more ideas on strategies to make the most of theater of the mind and how to make it work for you and your group. So there's a lot to cover and talk about today. So we're just going to get right into it. All right, so today is all about theater of the mind, and we're going to be talking about pros and cons of theater of the mind, some of the challenges to be overcome with it, reasons you might want to use it in favor of miniatures in a grid, and some strategies to help you use it successfully at your table, especially if you're a GM who hasn't tried it before or doesn't have a lot of experience with it. So I want to give a shout out and a thank you to DM Nell for getting this whole conversation rolling on the Google Plus community for Game Master's Journey. And a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today came from that discussion in the community. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes if you want to go see some of the things that you've missed that I'm not going to have time to talk about today. So DM now got this whole thing rolling by making a post in the community about an experience he had at a convention playing with a few different GMs who were using Theater of the Mind and how some of those sessions went better than others. And this kind of springboarded this whole discussion on Theater of the Mind. And I've been wanting to talk about Theater of the Mind on the show, and I've been wanting to try to give you some tips and tricks and strategies to to help it work for you. And so I thought this was a great time to, to do so. So I asked people in the discussion to give any ideas that they have. And, and I've had a few put forward that I'll share with you today. And I have some of my own. So here's a little bit of that post that got this whole thing started from DM Nell. 
He says, my recent experience at a local gaming convention got me thinking a lot about various aspects of gaming. And I'd like to share my thoughts on the method of presenting an encounter that is usually referred to as theater of the mind. So theater of the mind, I I guess we should define this term if we're going to be using it throughout the episode today. Theater of the mind is just referring to the style of play where you are not using miniatures, you are not using a grid. Instead, the GM is describing what the player characters can see and the players are asking for clarification, asking what they can do, and it's a conversation, a back and forth uh, between the players and the GM. And there's this misconception out there today that D&D has always used miniatures and and a grid and that that was the original way that D&D was played. And I think that that misconception comes from the fact that D&D does owe some of its roots to wargaming But that being the case, in the early days of D&D, it usually was not played with miniatures in a grid. And many of us, myself included, never really used miniatures or a grid until 3rd edition when uh, some of us at least think it it almost became necessary to use miniatures in a grid with 3rd edition. And my understanding is that 4th edition was very similar in, in that it kind of necessitated using the grid or at the very least it seemed to be easier that way or, or the game seemed to be designed to be played that way. Now in 5th edition, we have moved away from the grid again and now the default assumption is once again that you're using theater of the mind or that's to say you're not using miniatures in a grid. However, there are some aspects to the system that are held over from 3rd edition namely the opportunity attack, that might make you still feel like you need a grid, but but we'll talk about that later. All right, so getting back to DMNL's post here. I played in three games this weekend and ran one game. The three games I played in all used theater of the mind to some degree, and each was a different experience for me. The first was a first edition D&D game in which our characters were in a cursed mansion that was basically a dungeon crawl. Every encounter started off as theater of the mind, but the DM was not very good at painting a mental picture of the scene for us, so the encounters were confusing and difficult to play through, eventually requiring that we use tokens to represent relative positions between the characters and the opponents. The second game was also D&D 1st Edition, but this DM did use a grid for some of his encounters and Theater of the Mind for others. This game was a little better because the DM was a bit better at setting the scene, and when a scene was of a certain level of complexity, he drew it out on the grid. The third game was Call of Cthulhu and was entirely Theater of the Mind, and the GM was the best of the three at effectively employing Theater of the Mind because he was very good at painting the mental picture for us. So that's what got this all started, and it was really interesting. You know, DM now had three fairly different experiences, all using Theater of the Mind. In the first experience, uh, things didn't go super well and and it was purely theater of the mind or at least that's what the dm intended but but then they had to bring in some miniatures because everybody was so confused 
The second experience was a combination of theater of the mind and using a grid. And that was kind of the, the, the medium of, of the three experiences. And then the third experience was solely theater of the mind, but was done by a, a DM who, or GM who was more proficient at it or, or better at, at pulling off theater of the mind and was the best experience of the three. So, you know, there's a lot that we can pull from this. And I think the first thing and the, the biggest thing here is that theater of the mind is an art and, and it's a skill set. And there are some crossovers between the skill sets of running theater of the mind or using a grid, but there are also skills that are unique to theater of the mind and you could have a a gm who's awesome at running games with a grid and could be terrible at running theater of the mind it's it's a different style of play it's a different style of running a game and just like if you're a brand new gm and you're going to start using a grid there's things that you need to learn and able to do that well the same with theater of the mind and so you know part of this could just be, or I would say probably most of it is just comes down to the GM and and how well is the GM doing at pulling off theater of the mind. Now, some of it can also be on the players as well. And, and this is a point I'll come back to later, but I think in theater of the mind, it puts a little bit more responsibility on the shoulders of the players because you have to pay more attention. You can't zone out while the DM is explaining the setup of the encounter and then just rely on the map and the miniatures to figure out what's going on. You have to actually pay attention. And the other side of that is you have to ask questions to clarify. Again, theater of the mind works best when it's a back and forth between the DM and the players. The GM describes what's going on. The players ask for clarifications. The GM gives clarifications. The players ask, can I do this or is this possible? And it's a constant back and forth where you're constantly clarifying exactly what's going on. So the players are as much an active part of that process as the DM. So, you know, it's not all on the DM. A lot of it is, but a lot of it's on on the players too. If you have players that aren't paying attention and you have to constantly re-explain things, it is really going to bog down your game. And that's not a problem with theater of the mind. And that's not a problem with the DM. It's a problem with the players. The other thing that I think that's interesting about this is that the GM who used a combination of theater of the mind and miniatures in a grid was not the GM that was the most successful in pulling off interesting encounters and and a good session. It was actually the GM who did nothing but theater of the mind, but was good at it, who gave the best experience. And I think that's something to keep in mind because there are a lot of people that will tell you that doing all theater of the mind or doing all grid, that neither of those is the ideal, that the ideal is a combination of the two. And I think there's a lot of people that think that these days But I would argue that that's not necessarily true. Again, it all comes back to the DM and to some degree also the players and people's uh, styles. Um, Part of this that I'm not going to go into today that that DM now brought up in this was he thought that some of it maybe has to do with 
how you learn. You know, some people learn better visually. Some people learn better uh, with auditory things. Some people le learn better tactic tactically, you know, with things that they can handle with their hands. Um, so that could be part of it as well. But I'm, I'm not really going to go into that today because that's, you know, that's psychology and that's learning and that's understanding your individual players and what's going to work best for them. And, you know, we, it's kind of beyond the scope of, of what we can talk about in this podcast. But what we can talk about is what can we do as GMs to make theater of the mind work for us and our players and to get the most out of it. So personally, I much prefer theater of the mind. I started running games back in the second edition days of D&D. And that's, that's all I did was theater of the mind. I never even played in a game using miniatures until third edition. And, you know, my group, we got miniatures in a grid for third edition because it seemed like at the time that, that you kind of needed it or them to play third edition. And that was namely because of things like threatened spaces and opportunity attacks and, and things like that. And there are a lot of feats in third and 3.5 and Pathfinder that relied on the grid and positioning. And I remember in my Pathfinder days, I was trying to think of a way to run Pathfinder without the grid because I thought that that was the root of a lot of the problems I saw in Pathfinder and, and how people were playing it and the experiences we were having. I thought a lot of that came down to the grid and I thought if I could take the grid out of Pathfinder, that it would be a better experience. But then I started thinking about all the feats and spells and abilities that would be impacted by removing the grid. And I finally decided that it would be more trouble than it was worth because I would have to either figure out new ways to adjudicate those feats and abilities or remove them from the game. And, and it was just too much, too, too much of a hassle. Uh, luckily, Fifth edition came out and alleviated the need to do that because fifth edition is designed by default to be played without a grid. Now, personally, one of my reasons I don't enjoy using miniatures in a grid is that I've found in my experience at my tables that play with miniatures tends to get too bogged down into positioning. It just wastes a lot of time. Um, it also encourages players to stray from the time-honored way, the way that RPGs have always been played, which is the GM describes what you see, you tell the GM what you want to do, and the GM describes the re result. That's how D&D is played. That's how D&D has always been played, except for that brief anomalous period where it wasn't recently. I found that when you bring miniatures and grids into this equation instead of asking the gm what's possible or what's in the room or what they can do the players tend to instead quote ask the map they look at the map oh can i move to that goblin in this turn or not they look at the map for the answer to that they don't ask the gm they look to the map to see is there a chandelier I can swing from in this room they look to the map to see is there something I can take cover behind instead of asking the GM. Now, first of all, not, a, not only is this just violating the way that, that RPGs are played or, or were, were played back in the day, but it's also limiting the player's options because you know there's no map out there that has every little detail on it. 
And it removes the possibility of the DM coming up with things on the fly to make the story more interesting. So if I'm a DM and I'm using a very detailed map and I didn't put any objects that you can hide behind on the map and the players ask me, can I take cover? I kind of have to say no, because there's nowhere on the map that you can take cover. Um, or even worse, if the player just looks at the map and assumes that they can't take cover because there's nothing on the map to take cover behind, and they never ask me. Where if we were doing theater of the mind, the player might be like, can I find something to take cover behind? And before that moment, I hadn't considered that there was something to take cover behind. But I think that that's cool, and I think the encounter would be more enjoyable if there was something, so I can on the fly decide, yes, there's a pedestal or something else that you can hide behind. Now, if I had the map, I could do the same thing. I could say, yeah, there's some things on the map that, or some things that aren't on the map that you can take cover behind. But again, the players have to ask me first. And I found that they will not as often ask questions like that because they tend to assume it'll be on the map. And the more detailed your map is, the more this problem becomes a problem. If you're just drawing something very rough on, on grid paper, then you know you may get more of those questions because obviously not everything is represented on the map. But if you're using some published, nicely produced map, then the assumption will tend to be that if it's not on the map, it's not there. Also, contradicting what I originally assumed, I've seen far less interaction with the environment and with terrain from players when we're using minis and maps than I do with theater of the mind. And I think this, again, is partly because players tend to assume, whether consciously or unconsciously, that the map represents everything. And that if it's not on the map, it's not there. While in theater of the mind, a player is more likely to ask a question like, is there a tree I can hide behind? And again, with theater of the mind, I always have the possibility of deciding that there is something there that the player is asking for, even though their quote wasn't before. So maybe a player has a really cool idea involving uh, curtains in the room and originally, I never had any thought of there being curtains in the room, but I think it's a cool idea. So I, on the fly, decide, yes, there are curtains in this room. And I think one of the keys to theater of the mind, one of the things to understand to, to really make it work is that, like I said before, both the GM and players have jobs to do when it comes to theater of the mind. The GM needs to give vivid, concise descriptions that convey the needed information and the players need to pay attention. I actually think this is a benefit of theater of the mind because it makes it far more difficult for players to just check out and not pay attention. When you have a grid in minis, it's really easy for a player to look at their phone or not really pay attention and kind of get away with it and not have it be obvious to everybody at the table that they don't know what's going on because they can look at the map and figure out what happened while they weren't paying attention. But with theater of the mind, they can't do that. They have to pay attention. Also, another responsibility of the players in theater of the mind is they need to ask questions and they need to not be shy or afraid to ask questions of the GM to further refine their mental image of the scene and what's going on and to make sure that everybody's on the same page. 
Also, the GM has to be patient and has to understand that she may have to explain things more than once. In fact, you probably will. And sometimes it's because the player's not paying attention and shame on that player. But sometimes it's just because people are confused. So, you know, as a GM, you don't want to assume just because you have to explain things multiple times that people aren't paying attention. It could just be that people are confused. It could be the way that you're describing it or anything, really. Which, you know, is one of the weaknesses of theater of the mind that it relies on interpersonal communication and there is more possibility of confusion. But remember, that's how this whole game is played. So you kind of got to get past that anyway, right? Another huge benefit of theater of the mind, especially for newer GMs, is that it's much easier to fudge things so the scene plays out the way that you want. You know, I ran into this a lot when I started running Pathfinder. I remember trying to run that game and I couldn't have the NPCs do what I wanted them to do because maybe they needed one more square of movement than what they had to do what I wanted them to do or something like that. And I would run into things like that all the time where I'd be like, oh, you know, the PCs enter this room and goblins come out from from where they were hiding and surround the PCs or something like that. And I'd have this mental image of what happens. But then when I would go to run it in the game, a player would be like, oh, no, no, they can't do that. They only have uh, 30 feet of movement and they would need 40 feet of movement to do that. So they either can't move that far or they have to double move and they can't take their or, or some shit like that. And, and that's a problem with the grid is you will have armchair GMs among your players that are going to tell you what your NPCs can and can't do. And you'll find yourself in situations where, well, the players are right. Technically, by the rules, the goblin can't go that far in a turn. And, you know, a more experienced GM will just hand wave that away and not worry about it and say, hey, I'm I'm the GM here and this is what's happening. Or, you know, that GM has really high system mastery, might be able to maneuver things so that it can happen by the quote rules. But a newer, less experienced GM is going to be left less comfortable doing that and might just get steamrolled by the players, which is what happened to me. And your scene ends up not going the way that you wanted it to just because you didn't count your squares well enough beforehand. And really, you know, my job as a GM is to come up with cool stories and come up with cool consequences for what the players do. My job is not to count squares. That's just my opinion. And again, it it doesn't have to be an either or thing. You don't have to choose theater of the mind or grid slash mini play. You can do a combination of the two. Um, You know, DM now suggests using the grid for more complex encounters. Now, I would argue that you don't have to do that, that that theater of the mind can do just as well with complex encounters than simple ones. And I would even argue theater of the mind can do better than a grid of minis with really complicated encounters especially when you start thinking about things like flying creatures. You know, if you have multiple PCs that can fly and multiple adversaries that are flying and you're trying to use a grid and minis, it is a pain in the ass because everybody's at different altitudes. You're trying to use a two-dimensional tool to represent a three-dimensional scene 
And it's just a pain in the ass. It's much, much easier to do it in theater of the mind. At least I think so. But of course, we don't want to just hear what I think. We want to hear what some of you think. So here are some opinions on theater of the mind from some listeners. So Nick Answolf says, I greatly prefer theater of the mind when possible because it flows much more naturally with the storytelling aspect of RPGs. I don't feel like I am stopping the RPG to play a separate tactical miniatures game. And I completely agree with that. I got the same feeling. I, I've never noticed this more uh, strongly than when I used to play and run Pathfinder, where it literally seemed like we were playing two different games. We were playing the RPG when we were out of combat. And as soon as we got into combat, the game changed into this tactical miniatures war game. And I was a big fan of the RPG game. I was not such a fan of the Tacticals Miniatures War game. And I would much rather personally that those be two separate games so that I can play the game that I like and not play the one that I don't care for. Nick also says, I GM online and I think I've found a great solution for theater of the mind combat. At least it works well for us. I still use an image to help set the scene and move tokens around on the image into relative but loosely defined positions. And yeah, that's definitely kind of a middle ground you can find where you're, you have a map um, or, or some kind of image of, of the area where the PCs are and maybe you have tokens or, or something representing the different characters involved and you use that to show relative positions in a general way, but you're not getting down to five foot squares where people have to count squares to move from one place to another. And a great example of this in motion, if you want to see it, is check out some of the early episodes of Critical Role. And that's basically what they do. They, they have a map, they have miniatures, but they tend to rely on the GM to say, yeah, you can move that far or not, or yeah, your spell can reach that far or not, as opposed to sitting there and counting squares. So it, it's kind of this middle zone where you're trying to capture the both both the best of both worlds. You're trying to capture the freedom and flexibility of theater of the mind while at the same time having some visual aids to kind of help to visualize things. Frank Turfler says, I cut my teeth on basic and AD&D back in 81, and theater of the mind was the primary method of description for encounters. But we also had one member of the group who served as a mapper keeping track of our journey on graph paper. We did have a wet, dry erase mat and miniatures for larger scale battles. I think even today, even as someone who creates print and paste maps and terrain, it's more effective and convenient to use battle maps or terrain and minis as dressing or set pieces. So again, here I think Frank is talking about the same thing Nick was about kind of using the maps and minis for a general idea, but not getting down to, you know, down to the inch and counting squares and things like that. And yeah, that's a great point about back in the day mapping the dungeon. And that was very much a part of the game was, you know, there was no map of the dungeon. Um, the DM had one probably, but he wasn't going to show it to you. That was for the DM. Instead, the DM would describe things like you enter a room, it's 40 feet square, you know, the ceiling is this high. And then someone, one of the players would literally physically 
make a map on grid paper based on the GM descriptions. And part of the game was making that map accurate so that it could be used later and you didn't get lost. And part of the game was getting lost because the map maker in the party misunderstood something the GM said or misdrew something. And now the map doesn't work. And part of that was that in those days, dungeons, each level was like a different difficulty. So as you went deeper into dungeon, the monsters got more powerful And one of the tricks dungeon designers would use were ways to trick you into going into a deeper level of the dungeon without realizing it. Maybe this hall that you're in has a gentle slope that you don't notice and you actually end up in a lower and more difficult layer of the dungeon than you realize. So this is why the mapping was very important so that if you suddenly started encountering creatures that were way beyond your ability, you could figure out at what point you went to a new level and get back to a safer level. And that's where the dwarven ability to detect slopes and passages came into play because a dwarf had a very good chance of realizing that you were going down to a deeper level. Of course, if you didn't have a dwarf, you would just usually have a marble that you could put on the ground that would, of course, roll and let you know if there was a slope or not. So that was a a very fundamental part of the game back in the OD&D days that, you know, we've kind of lost as as time goes on. Scott Geating also wrote in and said, when I started in first edition and then second edition, then moving away from D&D to other systems, everything was 100% theater of the mind. I'd never been exposed to miniatures until I started playing Pathfinder a few months ago after a 22-year break away from all tabletop RPGs. My attitude when I was a college kid was, if I wanted to play Warhammer, I'd just go play Warhammer. Yeah, I know what you mean, man. (laughs) But I'm here to play an RPG. I'll admit that attitude has apparently carried over until now. I'm fairly openly hostile towards having the miniatures because all I see is the game slowing to a halt while everyone moves their precious minis into place and all everyone sees is stationary minis playing whack-a-mole and oh my god, if you move tactically, that triggers an attack of opportunity against you. I don't think it should be that way because all this combat is not stationary like a bunch of mannequins. The combat is a fluid ballet of movement. Everyone is engaged in moving simultaneously. And yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good point. And, and I have very similar opinions myself and I've seen the same thing. I'm bothered by how much the game is. The momentum of the game is stopped just by rolling initiative And I've tried methods like having players roll initiative at the beginning of the session so that when a combat starts, I don't have to stop the action to have everybody roll initiative. If you're using miniatures, it's 100 times worse because not only do you have to stop the game for everyone to roll initiative, but you got to put all the minis out and put everything in position. You might have to draw the, the map or whatever while everybody twiddles their thumbs. I mean, nothing kills your momentum and pacing more than that. I hate it. All right, Scott goes on to say, playing online, though, I'm just the opposite, mostly because I think if players don't have a map and tokens to engage with, target enemies, etc., then they're stuck just staring at the blank tabletop screen and have an even greater chance of having their attention falter, which just slows everything down as the GM has to repeat things. 
Yeah, I definitely see what you're saying there, Scott. And I would have completely agreed with you until I started watching Dice Camera Action with Chris Perkins. And he's running Curse of Strahd, completely theater of the mind, online, and it works great. And I have not once in that missed there being a grid or a map for me as a viewer to look at. Um, so I, I think that if I, as a viewer, am okay with not having it, that the, the players are probably even more okay not having it. And, and the reason I, I'm even thinking this way is I recently started going to Theater of the Mind in my online games, and I debated it a lot because I was afraid that it would not be as good of an experience for people watching because they wouldn't have, you know, the character's miniatures and, and the grid to look at and watch them move around and stuff. But after watching Dice Camera Action and comparing it to other actual plays I've watched where they do use the grid, I came to realize that, you know, what engages me at least when I watch something like that is the role play and the interaction between the players and whatnot. It's not the grid or the map anyway. So I, you know, I'd much rather see the videos of the players bigger and higher resolution so I can actually see their faces and how they're reacting than see a big grid with little tokens moving around on it. That's pretty boring, actually. Ethan Malone also weighed in on this and said, it's rather interesting seeing people's methods of organizing space in their games. My tables always employed a mix of grids and theater of the mind, even when we played fourth edition. I'm rather impartial as a player, but I prefer theater of the mind as a GM. And even when I might use some visual, and even then I might use some visual aids when need be. When I approach an encounter, I try to organize threats and opportunities in the abstract, which doesn't work as well for me translated on, into a grid, or it would take more time to plan. Boz Bunnick also commented and said, interesting ideas. I really like theater of the mind. If done well, you can avoid getting bogged down in too much mechanical detail about progressing through a dungeon, or even more so for overland travel in cities to keep the focus on the atmosphere and flow of the story. But it is very important to think about how to describe the scenes, and I agree completely. Two weeks ago, I had my PCs checking out a bandit camp, some 25 to 30 of them, and one PC then mentioned going right into the camp and questioning a priest about an object. It really showed me that I had not painted the scene well enough. But once I described two to three groups of some five bandits sitting around cleaning their weapons, the leaders discussing something, a few scouts coming and going, the players soon understood that they had to play it differently. With big fights with maybe 10 NPCs mixing in, how do you approach things? I found myself more or less just deciding hits on the fly because rolling all the dice just seemed to get annoying. We were playing in roll 20, so I just told the PCs when they were hit in the chat. And yeah, that's a really great point. And I would say that's actually another strength of theater in the mind is that it makes it much easier for you as a DM to hand wave things in combat, especially when it comes to NPCs without um, the players even really noticing that you're doing it. You know, so if you're, you know, rolling dice behind the screen and whatnot, you know, the players don't know that you skipped five of the enemies or you rolled them in groups of four instead of each individual one. They don't know. 
And if you're not using a map or a grid, there's less visual cues for them to keep track of where everybody is. So it gives you much more wiggle room and fudging room as a, as a DM, which can be very useful. This is Matthew Colville, and you're listening to Game Master's Journey. I want to give a quick shout out to the patrons of Starwalker Studios. The support of the patrons makes this show possible. So if you enjoy Game Master's Journey and you'd like to give a little back, becoming a patron is a great way to do so. Patrons also get some cool perks like game material I make for Primordia and access to a special monthly podcast I produce just for the patrons. I'd also like to give a huge special shout out and thank you to my tier four patron, Mr. Steve Strickland. Let's hear it for Steve. Yeah. Yes. You the man. Thank you so much, Steve. And thank you to all the patrons. You can find out more about becoming a patron yourself by clicking on the Patreon button at the top of the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com. All right, so we've talked a little bit about why me and some of the other listeners enjoy theater of the mind and find that it's better, at least in certain situations, than than using a grid and miniatures. And you know, just in a nutshell, it it gives you more wiggle room as as a DM. It can be a lot faster, allows you to have much snappier, uh, fast moving combats. And it creates less of a disconnect from between combat and the rest of the game. And with really complicated encounters, like for instance, involving multiple flying creatures, I think it can actually be easier to keep track of if you don't have to worry about the miniatures and the map. So now, you know, we, we've talked about why theater of the mind is worthwhile and why you probably want to add it to your bag of tricks. If you don't want to run in theater of the mind all the time, at least have it in your toolbox for those times when it's especially appropriate. So let's now talk about some ways to help you out in using theater of the mind and how you can do it well, hopefully. So one of the issues that you run into with theater of the mind is the whole thing of positioning. I mean, this is really where a grid in miniatures shines, right? Is you know exactly where everyone and everything is. That's also part of the drawback of grids and minis that you know exactly where everyone and everything is. So how can we have that certain, that same level of certainty and, and how can we keep track of things as GMs when it's all in our heads and we don't have those physical visual aids to help us? And, you know, just as a, a quick side note here, another uh, plus to theater of the mind is you don't need all the bullshit. So maybe you're playing on a bus or on a subway or in a car or out in the woods on a camping trip. You know, it's a lot easier to pull that off with theater of the mind than to have to bring all your miniatures and your grids and have a nice flat surface to put them on. You know, you're not going to be able to do that in a moving car. You're not going to probably be able to do that very well out in the woods. But theater of the mind, you can do that anywhere. So if we're talking about D&D specifically, one of the issues that can come up is positioning and knowing how far away things are. 
you know, because we have, for instance, a certain spell might have a range of 30 feet or your character can only move 25 feet. So you kind of need to know how far away is the bad guy? Can I get there this turn or not? Can I hit him with my magic missile or not? These are important things to know. So I think that a way that we can help ourselves out with this is that we can take a page from the books of a lot of other games out there who are a little bit more theater of the mind friendly in the way they handle distances and positioning. And basically what we can do is we can use a range band system for fifth edition instead of worrying about feet. So you can find systems like this in fate. I think 13th age uses a similar system uh, the Star Wars system by Fantasy Flight Games, Numenera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are many games out there that use a system like this. So this is the way that I think I would do it in 5th edition. And I'll just explain this to you how this would work. And it's pretty simple. So the basic way that we would do this is we would define five ranges for the game. Instead of worrying about you know how many feet away from something you are, you just define it in one of these five categories. And the ranges are engaged, short, medium, long, and extreme. And I think I'm getting these directly from Star Wars. I think these are the same ranges they use. Um, and I, I think it will be clear to you why I chose these ranges as we explain them. So engaged means that you're in melee. So engaged is important because if you are engaged with someone, then you are in the realm of the opportunity attack. So remember, this is one of the aspects of the system that we're concerned about with theater of the mind is how do you know when people invoke opportunity attacks or not if you don't have a grid? Well, this is, this is how you know. Are you engaged or not? So if I'm engaged with a goblin and I'm going to run away, and I'm not going to use the disengage action or the withdrawal action, I can never remember which it's called, then I'm going to provoke an attack of opportunity because I'm engaged with that goblin. If I weren't engaged, then I wouldn't. It's very simple. And you also see that the engaged is not a set distance. It's not necessarily five feet. It, it has to do with your reach, right? So if you have an opponent who's using a reach weapon or maybe is a large opponent, so has a 10 or a 15 foot reach or that, something like that, we don't even need to worry about that. All we need to know is whether or not you're engaged with that opponent. You know, if you're engaged with the opponent, then that means that you're within five feet of it because that's your reach, right? You'd have to be within five feet if you're able to make a melee attack against them, which is what engaged means. However, if that opponent is engaged with you, then, you know, maybe it's 10 feet away if it has a 10 feet reach, right? It doesn't really need, matter. All you need to know is whether it's engaged with you and whether you're engaged with it. That's all you need to know. You don't need to worry about numbers. All right, so that's engaged. Short range means that one move will get you into engaged. So this would correspond to about 30 feet. So if you're a short range from something, that means that you can use one move and be engaged, which means you can move and then make a melee attack against that target. So that, you know, if you're worried about feet, that would correspond to about 30 feet because that's what most player characters' movement is. Medium range means that it takes you two moves 
to get too engaged. So that would correspond to about 60 feet. Long range is from medium range, so about 60 feet, to up to about 120 feet or so. It takes you two moves to get from medium to long range and vice versa. So right here you can see, okay, if I'm at long range, it takes me two moves to get to medium. It then takes me one move to get to short and then another move to get to engaged. Extreme range means that you're beyond 120 feet or so. And it just means that you're pretty much beyond most characters' ability to target. Effectively, you're out of the out of the fight. So, you know, if you're in a situation where you have one character trying to flee from another character, once that character gets extreme range, they've gotten away. And it takes two moves to get from extreme to long and vice versa. So this is really easy to arbitrate. So, you know, where this is going to get the stickiest maybe is with spells because spells have ranges of feet. Well, if it's a touch spell, then you have to be engaged to target someone. That's pretty obvious, right? You have to be able to touch them. You have to be engaged. Spells with range of 30 feet would be a short range spell. So you have to be within short range to use that spell. Spells with a range greater than 30 feet, but less than 120 feet would be a medium range spell. And then spells with range of 120 feet or more, if there are any, I'm not sure, in 5th edition, would be a long range spell. It's as simple as that. If you're ex at extreme range, then you are beyond uh, the range of, of a spell. Now, the only problem with this, and you, you might have already seen this, is that we have the issue of there are characters that have a slightly higher or lower movement speed. And in this system there's not going to be any impact of that unless their speed is higher or lower in an increment of 30 feet, right? So specifically dwarves, for instance, have a speed of 25 instead of 30, and wood elves have a speed of 35 instead of 30. So in this system, the dwarf wouldn't really have any penalty because that five feet is beyond the resolution of, of our system, right? You see what I'm saying? And the wood elf wouldn't really get a bonus because again, that five feet difference is, is below the resolution of our system. So we want to do something about this, right? Because part of the balance of those races is that, you know, the dwarf speed of 25 is a negative and the wood elf speed of 35 is a positive. And that's part of what balances those races with the other races in the game. So we don't want to just completely ignore it. Plus, if you have a, a player who's playing a wood elf, that could be part of the reason that they chose that race is because they wanted the higher speed. And if you just basically make it meaningless, that player isn't going to be happy. So there's different ways that you could handle this. And I think the easiest way and the way I would do it is that I would say that someone with a speed higher than 30, like say a wolf, wood elf has a speed of 35 or like a monk or a barbarian, um, someone with a speed higher than 30 can make an athletics role to move farther than they would normally be able to. So we said normally to move from medium range to engaged would take two moves. Well, someone like a wood elf or a monk or a barbarian that has higher than 30 sp speed could make an athletics role. And if they succeed at that role, then they can make that move in one instead of two moves. So technically, for that turn, that character's speed is actually 60 instead of 35. So the reason I think this would work is I would set the DC 
uh, to probably like 15. And the idea is that, you know, a, a mid level, like a fifth level character, say, has about a 50% chance to succeed at this role. So this means, you know, you, you make that role if you're a wood elf. Sometimes you're going to succeed. Sometimes you're going to fail. And if your chances are about 50-50, it, it should even out. So, you know, sometimes you, you get to move 60 feet in the round and sometimes you get to move 30, right? Now with the dwarf or someone else that has a lower speed, I would just sometimes require them to make a role like an athletics role to keep up, you know? And, and so occasionally maybe that dwarf would have to make a role and if they fail, fail it, they can't keep up with the party and the party has to wait for them. That kind of thing. Again, I think that the the dwarf, the the five foot penalty is less important to touch on frequently than the five foot foot bonus. You know, your dwarf player is not going to complain if the fact that he's a little slower than everybody else doesn't come up that often, right? He's not going to complain. But your wood elf player is going to complain if the fact that he's a little faster than everybody else never comes up, right? And again, if you're talking someone like, say, a monk, where maybe you could get up to a speed of 60, well, at that point, you don't need to worry about the system because now your speed is double and, and it would just take half the moves, you know. So obviously, you can't have half a move and get, get to engage in half a move, but, but you could get from medium to long range in one move instead of two. Now, another way, kind of a variant way that you could handle this is you could let any character make that athletics role to do the double move and you could give the characters with higher movement, like the wood elves, advantage on the roll, and characters with lower movement, like the dwarves, disadvantage on the roll, and then people with the 30 movement would just make the straight roll. So that's another way you could approach that as well. So range bands is, is one way to kind of simplify D&D for theater of the mind, so it's a little less fiddly, less that the DM has to worry about. And the other, or another kind of hurdle to overcome with theater of the mind is just keeping everything in your head as a GM. You know, you're, you're arbitrating everything that the player characters are doing. You're deciding what the NPCs and the monsters are doing. You're adjudicating all the roles. You know, you're worrying about any story elements that are going to come and play during the encounter. And on top of all of that stuff that you normally do, you also have to, in your mind, keep this visual image of the entire encounter and where everybody is in relation to everybody else. And especially when you have a lot of players, uh, that can get really, really confusing. So what we need is a way to help ourselves um, keep track of that without having to have miniatures in a grid to help us do it. You know, if you want to do kind of the hybrid, like some of the listeners talked about where you use the grid in the miniatures, but you're not going to count squares, you're, you're welcome to do that. But if you're wanting to avoid that and like, you're like, I don't want to have to buy miniatures, I'm doing theater of the mind, then here's an idea of how you can do this, a, a little trick of the trade. I originally got this idea from Brian Kearns. So kudos to Brian Kearns. I've, I've since seen the idea in different forms in different places and so here's kind of my version of it, I guess. So I call this method the bullseye. So a great way to keep track of where everybody is in relation to everybody else is just take a sheet of paper and draw concentric circles on it like a big bullseye, 
okay? You can then use tokens or miniatures to represent each combatant. And these could be actual miniatures or they could be chess pieces or coins or Skittles or whatever you want to use. It doesn't matter. As long as you can tell, you know, that this token represents this character and this token represents that character. As long as you can keep them straight, that's all that matters. So then your uh, circles in your bullseye represent the different range bands. So the center of the bullseye is engaged. The next ring is short. The next one out is medium and then long. And then outside of the entire bullseye is extreme range. You then put the tokens on the bullseye based on where they are in relation to each other. So tokens in the same band or in the same part of the bullseye are considered engaged with one another. And you can count the number of bands between the two tokens to see how far apart they are. I used to do this with Numenera when I ran Numenera, and it worked great. It's a really easy uh, kind of visual aid to help you just keep track of everybody. And this works just as well online as it does in person because the players don't need to see this. This is really just to help you keep track of things as a GM and answer the questions when players ask you, can I attack this creature this turn? Or if I move here, will it evoke an opportunity attack and things like that? You don't need to share this or show this to the players. I mean, you can if you want to, but you don't need to. A possible refinement on this idea is that you could take your whole bullseye and divide it into four quadrants by drawing an X over it. You could then say that minis that or tokens that are in the same ring and the same quadrant are engaged. That way you could have four zones in each range band to represent that characters may be engaged with some combatants that are 60 feet away from the reference point, but not engaged with other combatants that are 60 feet from the reference point. If you catch what I, what I mean, because this system uses a reference point, which is the center of your bullseye, which is usually the way I do it. That's where the PCs start. So we start out the battle, presumably the PCs are all kind of together in a group. So they are in the center of the bullseye. And then I put tokens representing the monsters elsewhere on the bullseye, representing how far from the PCs they are. And then as things move around, you move them around on the bullseye. So again, the center of the bullseye is a reference point, and that can either be the PCs or you could make the reference point the boss that they're fighting. So this works really well if they're fighting one monster. You can make the monster the center of the bullseye and then put the PCs in relation to it. Um, if you're dealing with a larger combat with a lot of monsters, it's a lot of times easier just to put the PCs in the center of the bullseye, at least to start, and then people are going to move around. Ethan Malone wrote in with another great idea on how to handle your awareness of positioning in theater of the mind. He says, one of my friends and my GM currently came up with an interesting idea for 13th Age on this topic. Basically, he uses note cards to represent rooms or areas where all characters within are nearby one another. And when characters are engaged, we just base their minis within that card, which is to say have the miniatures touching each other. It's been nice to have in more complicated encounters where the parties split in different areas in a cool mashup of two approaches we see at our table. And yeah, that, that works really well. Um, that's very similar to how this is handled in Fate. And Chris Perkins did something really similar to this in one of the Acquisitions Incorporated uh, adventures where 
there was a mansion and the different rooms would move around in relation to each other. So he had note cards representing each rooms and they used that as kind of a rough map to see how long it would take to get from one area of the mansion to the other, assuming that I think, I think the assumption was it would take a move to move through each room. So yeah, you can, you can totally do something like that. And I think you could actually combine these two methods you know, you could have your note cards representing the different rooms or different areas of this massive battle. And then you could have your bullseye that's showing you where the PCs are right now and where things are in relation to them in that particular room, or even multiple bullseye if you have the party split in different pieces. My favorite part of the show is when I hear from listener GMs like you. If you have feedback for the show, I'd love to hear from you. There are a lot of great ways to get a hold of me. You can email me at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Lex Starwalker and on Google Plus plus Lex Starwalker. And finally, you can visit the website starwalkerstudios.com where you can get links to my Patreon page, my YouTube channel, and much more. Also on the website starwalkerstudios.com, you can find a link to the Google Plus community for Game Master's Journey. This is a great place to bounce ideas back and forth with other listener GMs. You can comment on the episodes of the show there, share your own homebrew world, and ask questions of the many experienced GMs that are part of the community. You can find all this and more at starwalkerstudios.com. We all have busy lives, and the hustle and bustle of modern day living can often leave us feeling anxious and stressed. Do you find yourself longing for your free time, yet when it arrives, you can't unwind? Do you feel restless and on edge? Are you having trouble sleeping at night? Are you not finding satisfaction in your romantic relationships? If you are suffering from any of these symptoms, Audible Books is a new therapy that can help you escape from the grind of your routine. You can sit back, close your eyes, and enjoy a beautiful fantasy world, or explore the stars, all without leaving your most comfortable chair. Ask your doctor if Audible is right for you, and take the first step to a richer life today. You can try Audible for 30 days for free, courtesy of Starwalker Studios. Just visit the website for your favorite podcast at starwalkerstudios.com, and go to the bottom of the latest episode show notes for details. Audible Books. Enjoy a good book today. All right. So we've talked about some of the merits of theater of the mind. We've talked about a a few tricks that you can use to help you kind of manage it as a GM. And so finally, in the, the final part of this discussion today, I want to talk about just some general advice on how you can do the best that you can when you're using theater of the mind. So the first thing and probably the most important thing is giving good descriptions as a GM. And, you know, we could probably do a whole episode just on how to give good descriptions as a GM, especially for theater of the mind. And maybe we will. So if you're interested in that, let me know. So when it comes to giving descriptions, especially for theater of the mind play, the best advice I can think of to give you is to keep your descriptions short and succinct. You know, that a lot of the adventures that we see published by Wizards for 5th edition are great examples of how not to do this. Um, 
Curse of Strahd, case in point, you go look at the descriptions in Curse of Strahd, and there are these long paragraphs, very long descriptions. And the problem, or there's a few problems with, with long descriptions like this, is first of all, they tend to be boring. Players will tend to lose interest and get bored and stop paying attention before you get through the description. This is even more true with read aloud text in a published adventure because they can tell that you're reading it to them. And for whatever reason, we much more quickly get bored when we know or perceive that someone is reading to us than we do when they're just speaking naturally to us. So, you know, I guess another piece of advice here is, you know, try to do your descriptions extemporaneously, which is to say kind of on the fly, off the cuff. Try not to read them. But even more importantly is keep them short and to the point. Even a, a description that you read can work well if it's short and to the point. We're talking a sentence or two at most. And not an Edgar Allan Poe sentence that is a paragraph disguised as a sentence, just a normal sentence. No, uh, no complex sentences. The other issue with a very long and dense description is there's a real limit to how much information we can absorb at one time, especially when you're talking um, auditory. You know, we, we tend to be able to observe or absorb more visually than we can orally, auditorily. I don't know what the right word there is. Um, but yeah, when, when you're listening to someone, there's less that you can retain than if you're reading it, for instance. So, you know, even a player that, that is paying attention and is engaged is not going to remember everything if you bombard them with 20 details about this NPC or this room or this battle or whatever you're describing. So I would recommend doing descriptions like you would write a newspaper article Use short declarative sentences and start out with the most important details first. In fact, I would say put the most important details at the beginning and the end of the description because people will tend to remember the first few things you said and the last few things you said. If they miss something, it will be the stuff in the middle. And then that stuff in the middle that's not as important, maybe just take it out completely because it's not important. Try to limit your descriptions to only two or three relevant and or interesting things. Use one to three short sentences tops. Players can always ask you for more details, you know, so you don't want to bombard them with adjectives and colors and smells and, you know, and, and you know, again, if you're using published adventures as, as a guide, you know, they're a lot of times they're bad examples of how to do this because they tend to have really long descriptions. I think what's really intended, even though they're in read aloud text boxes, I think what's really intended is for the GM to internalize that very long, dense description and then give the players a few of the highlights of that description. That long description is really there for the GM to internalize and understand. And then he decides you know, to dribble out bits of that here and there as needed. Um, sitting there and reading paragraphs to your players is, is usually not a good idea. So description's a really interesting thing. And 
you know, this is something that can be debated. You know, there are opinions all over the place on this. You know, whether you're better off with a really long, detailed description or you're better off with a short description or maybe even no description. So as a writer and a reader of epic fantasy, I've been really interested in this for some time. And I've seen quite a shift in how descriptions are handled in fantasy novels in the past 20-some years. So to kind of show this, take, for instance, The Eye of the World and the other books of the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. The Eye of the World was published in something like 1990. And these books are very much kind of the old way, where we have very um, evocative and very long and very detailed descriptions of everything from characters to settings all kinds of stuff. So, you know, these books, the Wheel of Time books have very in-depth descriptions. They'll tell you everything from the character's hair and eye colors, how they're built, all the way down to vivid descriptions of the clothes they're wearing and the environments that they're in. All right, so that's kind of one side of the spectrum. Now, in recent years, I've seen much more of popular fiction moving away from this kind of writing style and going toward much more succinct, much more brief descriptions. And many books even lack a lot of description at all. I've read books that were published in recent years where the main character is never described at all. Now, part of this could be the idea that, well, you know, the the reader tends to put him or herself in the place of the main character. And if you don't describe the main character, then it's easier for the reader to do that. You know, that may or may not be true. Who knows? But but that's something that some people think. So I think a good example of this more kind of austere writing style when it comes to descriptions is The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. You won't find the paragraphs upon paragraphs of detailed descriptions like you do in The Wheel of Time in The Name of the Wind. Instead, descriptions are more concise and to the point. And he does a lot more with fewer words. So, you know, if you're looking for inspiration on how to do good descriptions for your D&D game, I would use something like The Name of the Wind for your inspiration as opposed to The Eye of the World. The Eye of the World kind of descriptions is not what you want to be doing as a dungeon master. You want to keep it short and to the point and vivid. Another great example, although this isn't a fantasy book, is Old Man's War by John Scalzi. You know, I'm not even sure that he even ever once describes the main character in that book other than to tell us what color his skin is. Um, Yeah, we we don't get a detailed description of the main character or really many or any of the characters in those books. Uh, We don't get detailed descriptions of the ships or aspects of the environment or a lot of things. There's very little descriptions in those books or that book, I should say. And it's a very successful book. So there, again, can be a lot of different reasons for this. um, But the one I want to think about for this discussion today is the idea of the reader, or in our case, the player, creating their own mental image of what's going on. So the idea is that a mental image that the reader or the player builds for herself is going to have more of an impact on that person 
than an image that's just spoon-fed to them by the author or the dungeon master. So the thought here is that the author gives you a rough sketch and then you're filling in the blanks with your own imagination. And that act of filling in the blanks with your own imagination engages you in the story and invests you in the story. Or at least that's the theory. So I think there are a few things that we can take from this as game masters. You know, first, it's not necessary to describe everything. <laughs> Instead, focus on describing what's important. So for example, if you're running a combat encounter and you're using theater of the mind, you know, don't describe every little thing in the room, especially don't describe things that aren't relevant, but instead focus on describing things that have or possibly could have tactical significance in the encounter. So anything that isn't important or significant, don't spend time describing it. Let the players fill in those blanks themselves. So let's use an example here. Let's say that the players, the player characters, enter a barn or a stable. And you know, as the GM, that they're going to be ambushed by some bandits who are hiding out in the hayloft. So as a GM, I know there's going to be a combat. So when I describe the interior of this barn to the players, um, I want to make sure and describe anything that might be tactically significant. Now, maybe I don't want to describe that right away. I might not want to give away the fact that there's going to be a combat before the bandits jump on them from the hayloft. But once we're in combat, I definitely want to describe things that, that are tactically significant. So I might describe the bales of hay that are here and there in the room that could be used for cover. I might describe the bale lifting a device hanging from the ceiling that a rogue could swing around on. Um, I might describe the fact that the interior is dimly lit by only one lantern and things like that. However, I'm not going to waste time or waste player attention span by describing things like what kind of wood the barn is made out of or what colors the horses in the stables are because none of that is relevant. And again, you know, you don't have to describe everything at once. You know, the players can always ask questions. And what I would aim to do, you know, especially in like a combat situation, is describe the main things that are, that are obvious that would be of tactical significance. So things they could take cover behind, things they could maybe use as an improvised weapon. Mention things like that. And also kind of mention the tips of icebergs, so to speak. Which is to say, you know, you probably don't want to sit there and describe every tactical possible thing because that would take too long. It'd be too much for the players to remember anyway. But you can describe things that indicate that there's more there. You know, so you might say there are various things strewn about like hay bales. You know, so that tells the player characters, okay, there are hay bales and other things that I could maybe take cover behind or maybe use as a weapon or something. Um, but I'm not going to sit there and list everything. But then a player knows that those objects exist. And then a player can say, oh, is there a hoe laying around? Or is there a wheelbarrow or, or whatever? And then you can decide whether or not there is. So try to describe enough things that it gives an idea of what other possibilities might be there. 
you know, but don't worry about describing every little thing. So Levi Ford wrote in with a trick, says, a trick I always use when doing theater of the mind play is actually something my elementary teacher used to teach the senses. You put your thumb on your ear, index finger on your eye, and go down the line for nose, mouth, and chin. That always reminds me to fill in all the blanks for my players. What does the character hear? What do they see? How does the room smell? Does it have a taste to it? Does the air feel still? Humidly thick? Yeah, you look kind of dumb, Spider-Man grabbing your face every room, but using this trick seems to boost the immersion levels almost instantly. And yeah, that's, a, that's an awesome idea, especially in non-combat situations, you know, before you've rolled for initiative, right? They, they enter a new room in the dungeon and you give this really evocative description, pulling in as many of the senses as you can. That's awesome. Now, once you're rolling for initiative and now you're describing things tactically, I think you can totally still do that, but limit what you're describing to things that are tactically relevant, but still try to use the senses. So for instance, if maybe uh, someone knocked that lantern over and it landed in, in some hay and it caught fire and now the barn is filling up with smoke, the smoke has tactical significance because it's going to be obscuring things. It's going to be limiting uh, vision. If you're someone like a wood elf, now you can basically almost hide in plain sight because you you have some obscurement. So that's tactically relevant. But I could describe perhaps the smell of the smoke and the way it burns the back of your throat as you breathe it in. So I can pull in other senses other than just saying you see smoke billowing, you know, which is the obvious vision. I can pull in other senses, but I'm still, I'm using it to describe things that are tactically relevant. I'm not going to describe the smell of the hay now that we're in combat because it's not really relevant. But before we were in combat, that's something I could have described. And, you know, another point to make here is you don't have to give your description all at once either. In fact, you know, one of the challenges of theater of the mind is actually getting your description out because players love to interrupt the DM when the DM is describing something. Players seem to think that descriptions aren't important and this is a great time to interrupt the DM. Um, so, you know, one way to kind of cope with that is you could do a longer description, but do it in little sections of a, of a say, one or two sentences a piece. So you give one or two sentences of, of the overall impression that they get, pause, give them a chance to ask questions, then give the next few sentences of some more details. Pause, let them ask questions. Then give more details, pause, and, and so on. So I think that's a great way to handle descriptions, not when you're in combat, but when you're setting the scene in theater of the mind, instead of just rambling on and on and on, because your players tend to just zone out at some point. So it's better to do it in little pieces and give them a chance to ask questions in between each little piece. So, you know, again, that's a job of the players is players. You got to let the GM finish in theater of the mind. Let the GM finish the description before you jump in with what you want to say or what you want to do. I would say this is even more true in online games just because of the unfortunate limitations of our voice communications right now and how you walk over people, um, you know, in a room full of people, three people can talk at the same time and you can get the gist of what each one is saying. But online, 
you're only going to probably hear one of those people and the other two are going to be cut out. So um, it's even more important online, I think. I feel like my players online have missed a lot because I never got a chance to finish or even give a description because I, I couldn't get a word in. Um, you know, in person, it's fairly easy as a GM to take control of the room and, and hold the stage when you need to. You can even literally stand up and loom over your players to get them to shut the fuck up. Whatever you got to do, pound the gavel, whatever you got to do. Um, it's more difficult online. You, you can't impose your presence on people online the way you can in person. Um, but you can still manage it. A more advanced technique to consider is controlling player perceptions and thereby their character perceptions by what you do and don't describe and how you describe it. So players will tend to assume that things that you describe have significance or are important. So this is where the classic red herring can come in. So, you know, the classic example of this would be the PCs are investigating a murder and there are numerous objects in the room that could provide clues as to who, who did it, right? So some of these objects do provide clues and some of them don't. So you don't want to only describe the objects in the room that provide clues because that's too easy and smart players will figure out what's going on and be like, oh, well, everything the GM describes is a clue and we should investigate that and ignore everything else. Instead, you would also want to describe some objects that either don't provide a clue or maybe seem to provide a clue, but are actually misleading. And then that way, you know, your player characters have to investigate everything you describe and figure out for themselves what are the clues and what aren't. They can't just go by what you describe and what you don't describe or how well you describe it. So when you're giving a description, you may want to throw in some things that aren't super relevant just to make the important things a little less obvious to the players. This really depends on what you're trying to do and, and what you're trying to accomplish with this description. If you just want to get information across, then, then maybe just describe what's important. But if you want the players to do some investigating and you want there to be some mystery, then maybe throw in some red herrings or some things that aren't really important. This can also be useful if the PCs are trying to solve a mystery of some kind. And that could be the classic mystery or it could just be trying to figure something out. So I basically have two big pieces of, of advice for theater of the mind. The first one is, you know, mind your descriptions and, and do as well as you can with your descriptions. That's really huge. And the other big thing um, that I think is equally as important and especially, well, it's important regardless, but it's even more important if you are running a game and your players are used to using minis in a grid and you're wanting to transition to using theater of the mind at least some of the time or maybe all the time, this is really important to, to get your players on board with that trans transition. And that is simply, when in doubt, give the PCs the benefit of the doubt. So one thing that was added to Dungeons and Dragons in third edition that made grids and minis, at least at the time, to some of us seem more necessary than they used to be, was the concept of the attack of opportunity. Suddenly, with the idea of the attack of opportunity and threatened spaces or threatened squares, we suddenly needed to concern ourselves with threatened squares, which we never had before, and whether a character's movement would invoke these dreaded opportunity attacks. 
So this is what brought the grid into the game for a lot of us. I, I know what that's what did it for me. I think fourth edition had something similar. I know Pathfinder did, or 3.75 as we like to call it. And fifth edition has preserved the opportunity attack. And yet the default inception in fifth edition is that you are not using a grid in miniatures. So contrary to what some think and what I myself have thought in the past, the opportunity attack does not necessitate the need for a grid. If you're using my range band idea or something similar to that, then a player is always going to know whether their movement will invoke an opportunity attack or not, at least from what they're fighting, because they're going to know if they're engaged with any opponents or not. So if you're engaged with another opponent, then you're threatened and you could invoke an attack of opportunity. If you're not engaged with an opponent, then you're not going to. But you may ask, what about the case of other opponents in the room that your character isn't presently engaged with, but whom you might go by during your movement and might provoke an opportunity to attack from them? How, how do you know if that happens? So the answer here is simply the DM uses her best judgment. So in this way, theater of the mind can be a little more demanding on the GM because she has to hold the whole battle in her head. Now, again, you know, we, we have some tricks for helping with that, using range bands, using the bullseye thing and note cards for zones and things like that. Um, and there's also a very easy shortcut when dealing with this opportunity attack problem. And that's simply give the PCs the benefit of the, of the doubt. Part of this is just simplicity and part of it's psychology. So first, the simplicity part of it, it's just easier to assume that PCs don't provoke opportunity attacks unless they disengage from an engaged enemy without using the withdraw or disengage action, whatever it's called, which is where you're using both your action and your movement to move away so that you don't provoke opportunity attacks. So basically, the, the rule of thumb is if your character is engaged with an enemy and you move away from engaged with that enemy and you don't use the disengage action, you provoke an opportunity attack, period, simple. So unless that's the case, you don't. So if you're just crossing from one end of the room to the other and there's combatants here and there, you're not going to draw any opportunity attacks. It's just assumed that you move in such a way that you avoid getting that close to anyone. So again, the only time you're going to provoke is when you are engaged with an enemy and you're going to know when you're engaged with an enemy or when an enemy is engaged with you, either or. And the only time that distinction matters is when you're dealing with something with reach, right? So if you're dealing with an enemy who has a 10 or 15 foot reach, it would be possible for that enemy to be engaged with you, but you're not engaged with them because they can melee attack you because you're 10 feet away and they have 10 feet reach but you can't melee attack them because they're 10 feet away and you only have five feet reach. So you and the players are going to know whether or not their character is engaged and that's all that matters. So if they're not engaged, they don't even need to worry about opportunity attacks unless they're going to do something that would obviously provoke an opportunity attack, you know? So let's say one of the player characters goes down and is engaged with the enemy that just struck them down. And you want to run up and cast a healing spell on that character 
and then run away. Well, obviously you're going to provoke an opportunity attack because that character is engaged. You're moving and engaging with that character. So you're going to be engaged with who they're engaged with, right? It's just logic, right? So there's going to be times like that, that it's obvious that you do. But the rule of thumb is in general, if you're not engaged with an enemy, you don't provoke. So, so that's the simplicity aspect of it. So now the psychology side of it is you want theater of the mind to work, right? Presumably you're listening to this or you're considering using theater of the mind because you want to use theater of the mind because you see value in it. You think it's going to speed up play or you think it's going to make the game easier for you to run or you think it's going to make it more fun for everybody or put the focus back on the story or, or whatever. You have reasons that you want to use theater of the mind. So you want it to work, right? You want the players to be on board with it, right? You want them to be happy that we're using theater of the mind and not resisting you every step of the way, right? So the thing here is if the players feel like they're getting screwed over by your theater of the mind, then they're not going to be happy and they might start pushing for using a grid in minis, whether you started out using a grid and you're going to theater of the mind or you've just never used a grid, but they're like, man, I am constantly getting screwed over and I think it's because the DM doesn't really know where everything is and I'm getting screwed by this theater of the mind. And if we were using a grid in minis, this wouldn't happen, right? You don't want to be in that situation because then you have unhappy players and you have players wanting to use the grid and you don't want to use the grid and nobody's happy. So this could happen because they're taking opportunity attacks from your monsters more than they feel like they should. And you have players saying, you know, I get attacks of opportunity all the time. And I swear if we were using a grid, I wouldn't be getting them as often because I would be using my movement and my tactics to avoid them. But because the GM's doing theater of the mind and the GM's being a dick, I get them all the time. Or, you know, the player feels like, you know, the player wants to do something and they say, well, this provoke an attack of opportunity, you say yes. And that player feels like, you know, if we had a grid of minis, I'm pretty sure I could do this thing and not provoke an opportunity attack. But you dig in your heels and you're like, nope, nope, opportunity attack. Take it, bitch. <laughs> so that, that's one example of where you could run into this problem. Another example is maybe the player's character has a special ability that relies on positioning in some way. So, for example, rogues can use their sneak attack when they have an ally within five feet of the enemy, right? So using my range band system as a rogue, you can use your sneak attack if you have an ally who is engaged with the enemy you're attacking, right? So in this situation, it's important for everyone to know <laughs> who's engaged and who's not, right? Or, or who's within five feet of who and not. Um, or... Maybe you have a fighter who has multiple attacks and wants and, and uh, takes their first attack against an enemy and takes them out and wants to be able to move to the next enemy to take the rest of their attacks. So you need to know, is there another enemy close enough to get to with the rest of my movement so I can finish my attacks or not? So when these kinds of situations come up where it really matters where, you know, if you had a grid, you'd be counting squares to see if this thing will work or not. If you as a GM have any doubt in your mind as to whether or not this thing would work or where everybody is, then 
give the PCs the benefit of that doubt. So if you have any doubt whether or not the player character's movement would provoke an attack of opportunity, you give the player the benefit and you say, no, you don't provoke an attack of opportunity. Or if you have any doubt, if someone's within five feet of who the rogue wants to sneak attack or not, if you're not sure, you say, yes, you can sneak attack. Or whether the fighter has enough movement to get to another opponent to finish out their attacks, you just say, yes, you can do it. So the reason for this is, you know, we're not sure as a GM, right? So we're going to give the players the benefit of the doubt because we do not want the players to see the lack of grid and miniatures as a bad thing. The last thing we want is for players to say, you know, uh, Lex, next week when we play, can you please use a grid and miniatures? Because I feel like I'm getting screwed here. And I would rather use a grid and miniatures so it's fair, right? I don't want to hear that because then I feel like I've failed, <laughs> you know, at least partly that's on me, right? So one way to avoid that is anytime there's a doubt, rule in favor of the players, let the players do the thing they want to do without provoking the attack of opportunity or whatever. Now, exception, okay? If I'm running a scene and I have a very clear image in my head of where everyone is and a player wants to do something and I am 100% sure that that would provoke an opportunity attack, then that's the way I would rule it. And I would tell the player and again, let them know before they take the action. You know, if the player is like, I'm going to move here and attack this guy, you know, tell them, say, okay, you realize that that will provoke an opportunity attack. And this is even more important in theater of the mind than with the grid. You should always tell the players when something like that is going to happen and make sure that they know before they take the action and they can't take it back. Right. So in that situation, if I was 100% sure of where everybody was and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that action would provoke an opportunity attack, I would tell the player, yes, you can do that, but it will provoke an opportunity attack from this monster. And then they can decide whether or not to do that. But again, that's I'm 100% sure I know exactly where everything is. If that was not the case, if I had even slightest doubt, I'd let him do it. No opportunity attack. Again, rule in favor of the players anytime there's any doubt whatsoever. Another way to say this is save your moments of using opportunity attacks against the PCs or saying that a PC's position-based ability won't work at this particular time for when you know for sure that that's the case and ruling otherwise would undermine the, quote, reality of your game, if only for you. And also those moments when it would be especially dramatic or important or cool, right? So there might be particular moments in the campaign where, you know, the, the PC not being able to do their thing or uh, getting an opportunity attack would be really dramatic and cool and, and all that and then do it, you know, do it those few times, but not all the time. Or there might be times where you've decided a certain thing like there are no bales of hay down here and the players ask for one and want one and you say no because it's very important for whatever reason that there there aren't any right you don't want to undermine the reality of your world by just whatever the players want that's the way it is because it's that's no longer a game that's a circle jerk and that's that's not what your players signed up for probably uh, <laughs> 
So yeah, rule in favor of the players anytime there's a doubt. And that will help avoid bad feelings of I'm getting screwed in a way I wouldn't be getting screwed if we were using a grid in minis. So if it doesn't matter or you're not sure, rule in favor of the players. That way, if anything, the players are going to feel that using theater of the mind is helping them. They may feel that way. They may feel like, man, you know, we get away with more since we're using theater of the mind than we used to. That's okay if they feel that way. It's fine if they feel like it's a wash. It's, you know, the same. What you don't want is for them to feel like it's worse, like they're getting screwed over using theater of the mind because then they're going to want to go back to the grid. And presumably you don't want to do that, or at least not all the time. So again, this is especially important, I think, if you're trying to transition from a grid to theater of the mind, then you really, really want to be careful with this and make sure that you aren't screwing your players over. And I think it's, I think it's a tendency sometimes as a GM in theater of the mind I think we kind of have a tendency to want to screw our players over a little bit just because the game is very heavily weighted in favor of the players anyway. And in theater of the mind, it, it seems a little bit more so because I think most of us as, as GMs, even if we've never thought about it, tend to kind of favor the players a little bit unless you're like a killer GM or something. So, you know, I think that sometimes we try to compensate for that and, and try to be kind of a dick to the players a little bit. And um, there's definitely something to be said for, for making your campaigns deadly and dangerous. And, and, you know, there's no uh, thrill of victory if there's no real chance of defeat, you know, definitely agree with all of that. But if you're trying to transition from grid play to theater of the mind, you know, give the players the benefit of the doubt and it'll help you guys out. And then once everybody's comfortable with it, if you want to start getting a little more strict, then you can, but make that decision as a group. All right. Well, it's time to wrap up episode 124 of Game Master's Journey as I expected this has been a doozy of an episode, but I feel like we covered a lot of ground today. Um, hopefully this has been helpful to you. Uh, if you're a theater of the mind GM or you're, you're considering trying it, um, hopefully this has been helpful to you. If you have any tips or tricks for running theater of the mind that I did not cover today, any advice for GMs on, on how to really shine at running theater of the mind, let me know. Um, this is a big topic. I could easily see revisiting it in the future, especially if I get some cool ideas from you of additional ways to help GMs out with this. So I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production. Your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music provided by Cloudwalker, Renfield, Stanko, Transboy, and Ish. Please see the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.